Before we start today, I want to let you know that this episode discusses disturbing incidents of domestic violence, including children being harmed. You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. Family court judges sometimes decide that domestic abuse claims aren't credible. But making the wrong call can end with children paying the ultimate price. On April 21st, my ex-husband suffocated my son in the backseat of his vehicle while he slept, strapped in his car seat after a day-long trip to Disneyland. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and this is Civic. Domestic abuse has long been associated with physical violence. The stereotype is of a woman who seems to always have bruises. But as we heard in our first episode, a deeply harmful form of domestic abuse doesn't leave a mark. It's called coercive control. The abusive behavior may include tormenting someone psychologically, progressive social isolation, food deprivation, intimidation, or economic oppression. Although coercive control itself doesn't involve serious physical assault, it often ramps up towards it. I talked to a woman using the pseudonym Sarah to protect her identity. For 10 years, she was subjected to her former spouse's increasingly controlling and hostile behavior. Sarah said she was convinced her life was in danger, and so did the counselors she turned to for help. He had threatened to kill me. He had threatened to slice my face with a knife. He had previously put his hands on my neck. Anytime I did a danger assessment, they would state to me that you're in a very high critical danger state, and we suggest you start planning, you start preparing, you put knives away, you let people know where you are, make sure you're not being tracked, make sure you're not being watched. In 2021, Sarah was placed in a safe house with her children, who were four and five at the time. During a July 2021 trial to secure a restraining order, Sarah provided pictures of bruises and a video where you can hear her abusers screaming and children crying. Her abuser counterpetitioned for his own restraining order. He claimed without evidence that Sarah physically assaulted him. The judge weighed both claims equally. He found them both not credible. Lisa Fontes is the author of Invisible Chains, Overcoming Coercive Control in Your Intimate Relationship. She said that children who are exposed to coercive control are traumatized in profound ways. In a webinar for the organization Domestic Shelters, she explains its impact on children. So just as you can't shake a child because their brain bangs against their skull, the exposure to the tension, to the noise, to the worry of domestic abuse and coercive control also hurts their brains in a very similar way as being hurt directly themselves. They suffer when either parent suffers. But they especially suffer if they're more attached to one parent and that parent is suffering. What are some children's symptoms if they're exposed to domestic abuse and course of control? Traumatic arousal, so difficulty sitting still, difficulties falling asleep, waking up in the middle of the night. They may feel numb emotionally. On the other hand, they could be very emotional and emotionally unstable. 
They may have intrusive memories, so basically flashbacks, or they can't stop thinking about certain things. They may have low tolerance for stress. So this would be a child who is exploding or bursting into tears all the time and disproportionate to what's happening. And that can be because of their exposure to the course of control. You may see children with depression, anxiety, low self-esteem because of the way they're treated. They may withdraw socially. They feel like no one understands them. You may see traumatic stress reactions, like there's a noise and they jump. The court in Sarah's case appointed a minor's counsel to assess the children's health, safety, and well-being. And the counsel testified that the children had behavioral issues, especially the son, whose crying fits and treatment of his mother she called, quote, very concerning. Sarah's description of her children's behavior also fit the pattern of coercive control trauma. It's been a tremendous struggle just getting them to feel safe and comfortable. They had very, very difficult transitions in the beginning, and it's still very difficult. They find it hard to not have me around. And so I think when they initially started, there were a lot of tears, a lot of fears, and a lot more than the average child. So the school counselor got involved and they had to keep pictures of me on their desk to remind them that I wasn't going to go anywhere. We had to make bracelets that we would all wear so that they would be constantly reminded that I'm there. They have something that we've worked on together. They can touch and feel is tangible and hopefully feel some kind of comfort. Sarah says she spent her life savings on lawyers because her children's father won't agree to shared custody arrangement. He's fighting for full custody. According to Lisa Fontes, family courts can often enable domestic abusers to further victimize their former partner and children. Legal abuse or custody stalking is a big issue. It's using legal actions as a way to exert power force contact and impoverish, and I'm highlighting the word impoverish there, the ex-partner. There's the constant stress of going to court, taking time off work, orchestrating childcare and transportation, and having to confront the abuser face-to-face in court. Falsely claiming victimization by the ex-partner. I wrote a couple of pieces on this for domesticshelters.org, how abusers are sometimes flipping the story and claiming to be victimized themselves. And then filing constant motions to vacate protective orders and really for everything that they can, fighting over custody, fighting over property, and so on. The father had supervised visits until last summer when that supervision was lifted. Sarah's abuser now has full unsupervised access to the children. Sarah says she's worried about her children. Her five-year-old son recently returned from his father's house with his eyelashes trimmed off. The boy said his father did it because he has a facial tick. Sarah said her son has developed these involuntary twinges due to stress and trauma. Her son's treatment at the hands of his father seems to fit a pattern that Lisa Fontes also identified. She said some abusers who lose control over their victims will devise ways to hurt them, even if it means harming their own children. Somebody I'm working with now, she has a restraining order against him, and still has her young child, toddler, has to do visitation with this father. And when the child comes back, the child is almost always a bit hurt. 
So most recently, this toddler had 10 huge mosquito bites all over her body. Another time, her fingernails had been cut down below the nail bed, and the child reported that the father had you know, made it hurt when he cut her nails. So each time, the abuser is hurting the child to get at his ex-wife. And I, I unfortunately, I see this again and again. This kind of disturbing behavior is also familiar to Leslie Hu. She's a San Francisco woman whose abusive ex-husband used their son to hurt and control her. He cut his nails really short one time. I mean, really short to like, you know, the point there was no white there. And I, all I could do was email him and email the, the lawyers like, the short hurts him, you know? And I could email the, the lawyers that, but... You know, that's the extent that I do. And Pierce being a sweetheart saying, no, it's okay, mom. It's okay. I said, did it hurt when you cut your nails like that? She's like, yeah, but it's okay, mom. It's fine, you know? Try to do the best he could to cope with the situation, you know? During her five-year marriage to Stephen O'Laughlin, Leslie suffered coercive controlling abuse. Early in their relationship, she noticed some red flags, but he was always able to say the right things to convince her he'd change. Shortly after getting married in 2010, O'Laughlin persuaded Leslie to quit the family's container shipping business. He said her family was too controlling. He then moved Leslie and their son from San Francisco to Carmel to further isolate her from her family. Then his behavior became alarmingly erratic. He started believing conspiracy theories he came across on YouTube that the U.S. government would soon round up American citizens into internment camps. O'Laughlin was so convinced of an imminent threat that he decided to leave the country. Leslie said she knew she couldn't stop him from taking their son, even though she'd endured years of abuse. He hasn't hit me. Nothing's happened. I don't have enough evidence to get full custody of Pierce. So what am I going to do if I stay here with him being crazy and I try and share him with Pierce? Like, what what am I going to do? She tried to leave several times during their five-year marriage from 2010 to 2015. But every time, O'Laughlin's threats would petrify her into staying. I get threatened, like, you know, if you leave, I'm going to call the police. You don't dare leave with my son, you know. At the time, I mean, in retrospect, it's so stupid. I should have said, call the police, call them. But at the time, you know, I was so scared by it, you know, I was so scared that he was going to take Pierce away or like tell the police that I'd been doing something bad, that I would be some kind of bad mom, that I wouldn't be able to take my son with me, you know. So I, I stayed. She finally did escape, but that meant making a heart-wrenching decision. I did, at the time, the hardest thing I've ever done, but I've done harder things since then. But I said, I'm going to leave Pierce here. And I'm going to come back tomorrow for him. But I'm leaving tomorrow. And I'm not, we're getting a divorce. Like, I, I, I'm not doing this anymore. And I think the shock of me leaving Pierce, like, he didn't fight me. And in my mind, like, leaving Pierce there was like, I have to take this little rowboat, this dinghy, to safety, to the shore, to get, like, a big safety ship, like, the Coast Guard to come back to this sinking ship to help Pierce and I, because I can't do it by myself. And if I take him, he's going to sink us. So I had to do that. So I called my brother, my parents, and they were like, we've been waiting for this call for so many years. Like, we will be there. So sure enough, my brother came down and my best friend, Kevin, 
the next morning and picked me up. And I left Pierce there. I called the babysitter. I knew she was coming. But I left Pierce there. And it was so hard. Sylvia it was so, so hard. But there was no other way out, you know? She moved back to San Francisco and divorced O'Loughlin and agreed to shared custody of their son. But every time Pierce returned from O'Loughlin's custody, he'd be nearly inconsolable. He would be so angry. He would hit my parents. He would, like, scream. So I ended up doing the system where when he would arrive, I would sit in the car with him for, like, half an hour, an hour, just to calm him down. You know, he would get all angry, and I would just, okay, Pierce, like... You know, let's drive the car, let's pretend like we're driving, and just try and calm him down. Meanwhile, O'Loughlin's controlling behavior ramped up. He insisted, without evidence, that Pierce was vaccine intolerant, even though the boy's pediatrician said that he was a totally normal, healthy child. O'Loughlin's refusal to allow vaccinations left Pierce susceptible to measles and COVID. Leslie fought O'Loughlin in San Francisco family court. She hoped the judge would side with her wish for Pierce to be vaccinated. Despite O'Loughlin's clearly unhinged logic, Leslie's lawyers advised her to temper her communications with the court. I want to scream like, oh my God, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see what's going on? And I, I can be honest, I never could have imagined that he would take it to this degree. I knew that he was crazy. I have plenty of emails like, can you see how crazy he is? Can you see how crazy? I knew that there was a problem. I wanted to scream like, can't you see that there's a problem? But to be tempered, Steve wrote everything possible. He sent letters from 2011 that I had sent to my parents that I was in a fight with them. He was able to put all of that into his document. So it was 85 pages, like, you know, letters, emails, where mine had to be four pages and I had to be completely tempered. I couldn't put all the information that I needed in there. I mean, I think that's a pretty stark difference. At first, the judge granted Leslie full medical custody, which meant sole legal custody. But the judge then decided to grant O'Loughlin due process to prove that Pierce was vaccine intolerant. The judge allowed O'Loughlin to extend court proceedings to March 2022 so he could introduce an anti-vaxxer as an expert witness. The judge also ruled that before the next trial date, Pierce would get a measles vaccine. That was January 12, 2021. He was staying at Steve's house that night. And so the next day, I went to go pick him up at school. So when I arrived, like, I stood there for a while, and he didn't come out. And so I asked him, like, Where's, can you get Pierce? I'm like, sure. And then the guy looked at me, and he goes, Pierce wasn't at school today. And the way his face was, I was like, oh, my God, something is wrong. So we went to the police station, and... They started with an AMBER report. They went down the list of AMBER report stuff. And that's what I thought. I thought, oh, my God, he kidnapped him. And you know what? I finally have my evidence to get full custody. And it wasn't until I called his work colleague, Steve's work colleague, that they really got into high gear, you know, and knew something was really wrong because they, they said he didn't show up to work. And that's very unlike him. It just so happened that his friend was his landlord. And so I had been talking to him, like, I can't find him and whatever. And so he had driven to the apartment with a set of keys. So the police didn't have to break him in the end. They, he gave him the keys and they went in and I didn't hear from them for a while. And of course, you know, when 
that happens, you know, nothing is good. So I called that friend and he told me that they were dead. <laughs> and they were both dead. <sighs> Steve shot Pierce while he was sleeping. And then he hung himself, but he didn't succeed. So he had to shoot himself like an utter coward. Leslie's experience is not unique. And in many cases, a parent doesn't see it coming. Research by Lisa Fontes showed that in 20 to 30 percent of cases of domestic homicide, there are no prior physical acts of violence until the murder. Fontes explained that these betrayals cut especially deep because they're enabled by a system that's meant to protect the vulnerable. How does this legal abuse affect children? I really wanted to highlight for you the anguish of this. The court system, the legal system, is supposed to be here to make us all safer. It's supposed to be here to assure our rights. And so it's particularly tormenting for both the target, of course, of control and children to find that the courts are not protecting them, that they are serving as an arm of further abuse by the domestic abuser. So we really need to educate judges, attorneys, and the general public about legal abuse. That's exactly what Pallavi Dewan is trying to do. She's the director of domestic violence policy for the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. She helped draft a new California law that expanded the family code to allow coercive control into evidence in family court. We've done the first step. We've named the harm. But the other component of that is to educate judges on and to continue to train judges on what what it looks like, because it's not enough to have it in the law. We do need training. That is true of any new law especially when it's related to something that's maybe not as spoken about. So the naming was the first part. Education and training is the second part. And I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think it's an ongoing process just generally to educate people about domestic violence, but particularly judges, and to emphasize that it often involves and starts as a pattern of control. And that is where it is often the most damaging to victims and correlates really highly with risk of lethality. Dewan said she felt compelled to draft the law out of a sense of desperation. I spent so much time in the DA's office handling cases that involved murders and attempted murders of these women and children, and it got to the point where it was too much. There wasn't anything that could be done at that point because the murder had happened and, you know, I could get a conviction, but I wanted to do work you know, at the front end where we see these red flags, we see these warning signs, and there's still time to divert the case or the path of this victim and abuser away from that awful result. Coercive control does correlate with risk of lethality, and it's why a lot of service providers include control as a question in danger assessments when they're sort of doing an intake, when they meet a survivor, they're trying to assess what sort of danger are they in. It's a way of sort of tailoring the response to the victim and the support and safety planning to the victim's risk and the questions that are on the 
the most you know, validated danger assessments include things like, does the person control your movements? Are they possessive of your time? Are they, you know, the isolation, deprivation of resources, anything that shows that the abuser is trying to control the victim's liberty rights or deprive the victim of their liberty rights is a very, it's a red flag. And it's something that I think we really want people to take seriously. Since 2008, 864 children have been murdered by separating or divorcing parents in the United States. In the wake of her son's murder, Leslie Hu is trying to start a movement to help stop gun violence during one of the most contentious times in a person's life. She was inspired by a close friend who happens to be a lawyer in family law. She's decided to ask all of her clients to disclose their weapons, and if they have weapons and they want her to represent them, that they're required to remove their weapons off property and store them in a third-party location. And that was a part of her, you know, retainer. There was no other way around it. If you're not willing to do it, I'm not taking on as a client. And I thought that was so beautiful. I just listened to it in the beginning, but, you know, a month later or so, I just thought about it. I'm like, what if we ask all the lawyers to do that? What if we just ask every single lawyer who is in the family law, who's vowed to take care of families, to say, you know what, at all costs, safety first for the child, and I will make this a part of my retainer because it keeps children safe during a very contentious time. The movement asks family lawyers everywhere to make the same vow. It's called Pierce's Pledge. More information can be found at piercespledge.org. California State Senator Susan Rubio is trying to introduce measures to stop the murder of children. In June 2022, she introduced a Senate bill that would make judges take training on domestic violence and child abuse. It would also mandate that expert evidence admitted to court must come from professionals with expertise and clinical experience in working with victims of domestic violence or child abuse. The bill is known as Peaky's Law. It was named for a five-year-old boy from Southern California who was murdered by his father in 2017. Peaky's mother, Anna Estevez, told her story after Rubio announced the measure on the steps of City Hall in Los Angeles in June of 2022. In an interview with a police officer, my son described how his father physically and emotionally abused him. In a written report to Child Protective Services, the forensic therapist informed the social worker that it was her belief that my son was being coached and that there were inconsistencies with my son's narrative. The mental health consultant interviewed my son and asked if he was afraid of his father. My son responded, I don't want to talk about that. All of the above referenced evidence and more was submitted to the presiding judge on my divorce case. He ignored the reports and allowed my ex-husband to maintain joint custody of my son. In December of 2016, I filed for a restraining order. Again, the same judge was provided evidence documenting my ex-husband's behavior. In addition to the evidence, I subpoenaed three law enforcement officers to testify on the documented lies and abuse. The family court judge disregarded the evidence and ruled against allowing testimony from the officers, stating that they were there for custody reasons, not abuse. At the end of the hearing, the judge stated that my ex-husband's testimony was more credible than mine and denied my request for a restraining order and supervised visits. 
I wonder what that judge would say now if he had to explain how he concluded that a murderer has more credibility than a protective parent. My request for sole custody with supervised visits was denied. And eight days later, my ex-husband murdered my son. On April 21st, my ex-husband suffocated my son in the back seat of his vehicle while he slept, strapped in his car seat after a day-long trip to Disneyland. According to homicide detectives, my son awoke during the violent act. His first attempt at suffocating my son failed. And as my son sat helplessly in his car seat, his body twitching, my ex-husband proceeded to suffocate him a second time. Then he proceeded to drive two hours with my son's lifeless body in the back seat of his vehicle. He abandoned my son's body in a heavily wooded area on some random hillside in Santa Barbara County. And while my son's lifeless body sat propped up against a tree for over two months, his father was living life recklessly in Las Vegas and enjoying his life to the fullest. During the homicide investigation, detectives seized evidence and discovered that my ex-husband began planning my son's murder shortly after the restraining order hearing. My ex-husband committed this heinous crime because of me wanting a divorce and trying to protect my son. During his confession, he admitted he hated me and wanted to hurt me. And he did. He hurt me in the deepest and most inhumane way possible. He took the one thing that mattered the most to me in this world, my only child. In 2017, Piki's father, Armazd Andresian Sr., was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison after pleading guilty to first-degree murder. A few months after introducing Piki's bill, Senator Susan Rubio withdrew the bill. That's because she encountered strong pushback from the Judicial Council of California. The Judicial Council explained its opposition in a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee. The letter says that the bill, quote, represents an impermissible interference in the operations of the judicial branch and that it creates, quote, serious concerns about impartiality and neutrality. But lawmakers, experts, and advocates argue that laws are needed to educate judges. That's because evidence shows that courts lack impartiality and neutrality, especially when domestic abuse is alleged. And it's a bias that cuts against women. A 2019 study by Joan Meyer, a law professor and director of the National Family Law Violence Center at George Washington University, showed an apparent systemic gender bias against women in U.S. family courts. Her study found that women often grapple with the high cost of legal help and are penalized by courts that favor fathers. Pallavi Dewan said she became very familiar with the way judges view domestic violence survivors. I practiced in criminal court for 13 years, and I have encountered sort of the common misconceptions or assumptions people have about domestic violence victims generally. And, you know, why didn't she leave the relationship? And, you know, if she had been abused, she would have left. And I think that is a result of, you know, not just a misunderstanding about how domestic violence works, but it is in some cases, in my experience, a product of that misogyny, which manifests as a disbelief of women who are alleging abuse. 
And that is especially true in family court where victims are trying to separate or trying to get away and are trying to protect their children and are not being believed. Dewan explained that women risk losing custody if they accuse their children's fathers of abusive behavior. Studies show that when mothers claim abuse, especially child physical or sexual abuse, the fathers will often counterclaim that the mother is trying to alienate the father from the child. And so the judge will oftentimes give you know, weight to that counterclaim and then punish the mother and give the father custody or visitation rights when the mother is seeking sole custody, believing that the mother is fabricating the claim. And the same studies show that when fathers allege that mothers are abusive and mothers counterclaim this idea of alienation, that the judges are not punishing the fathers. It's really only mothers that are seeing they're losing custody to the abusive father when they're bringing claims of abuse. Fathers fighting claims of child abuse will often invoke a theory called parental alienation syndrome. It's a term that was first coined by Dr. Richard Gardner in 1985 as a legal defense against accusations of child abuse. It claims that there's a diagnosable mental illness that can lead children to make false abuse allegations. It also suggests children can be brainwashed by one parent into falsely claiming that the other parent is abusing them. The theory has never been peer-reviewed, and attempts to enter the syndrome into the official Manual for Mental Illness Diagnosis, the DSM, have failed. But the theory has still gained traction. A 2012 research report commissioned by the U.S. Department of Justice showed that in California, custody evaluators that are appointed by the court say they don't believe about a third to a quarter of children alleging abuse during separation or divorce. Kathleen Russell is the founder of an organization based in Marin County called Center for Judicial Excellence. She said she's determined to rid the courts of parental alienation. There is a cancer in the courts, which I would say is the number one reason that victims of domestic violence, survivors of domestic violence and their children end up not being protected is because of this parental alienation dogma that has infected the family courts throughout California and throughout the country. Russell helped draft Peaky's law. She said that although the bill has been rescinded, her fight to protect children isn't over. We're regrouping and going to be reintroducing Peaky's law next year. In our next episode, we'll investigate the theory of parental alienation and we'll hear about reunification therapy. That's the process of forcing children to recant their allegations of abuse and embrace their abusive parent. When they were reading the court order to us, they told us that we would have a 90-day no-contact order with our mom and anyone that she knew. And they told us that if we tried to say that our father was abusing us, then the no-contact order would be extended. And really, that was the threat to keep us compliant and our behavior in line with their narrative. If you or anyone you know is suffering from domestic abuse, help is available. 
The National Domestic Violence Hotline provides confidential assistance to anyone affected by domestic violence through a live chat and a free 24-hour hotline at 1-800-799-7233. The National Dating Abuse Helpline, a project of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, can be reached at 1-866-331-9474 or through live chat at loveisrespect.org. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced by KSFP LP, a project of the San Francisco Public Press. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who's also program director for KSFP. Lila LaHood is the publisher of the Public Press. Michael Stoll is our executive director. Lisa Rudman is our development director. John Dillon created our theme music. Thanks for listening.